Welcome. If you're a woman who has a sense that there's more out there for you, you're in the right place. I'm Whitney Baker, host of the Electric Ideas podcast. Somewhere along the line of working kids, life carried on, but I lost track of my truth. I'm on a reflective journey, and that's what this podcast is all about. Each week, I interview a woman who is lighting her own path and offering others hope. Before our conversation ends, we'll share a reflective question for you to explore. Sometimes all we need is a jolt, a fresh idea, an aha moment that connects us to a sense of possibility. This, my friends, is what I call an electric idea. Welcome back to Electric Ideas. I'm your host, Whitney Baker. I want to start today out with a super important announcement. Doors are open for Season to Shift, my six-week mastermind for moms, which comes around only a couple times a year. And I actually want to share something a little extra personal with you today. I was connecting with a mentor yesterday, and I'm a very passionate person. I'm passionate about what I do. I'm passionate about how I live my life. And she reflected back to me that for how passionate I am about what I do, that sometimes I use kind of watered down language to describe it. And this struck a chord, I'll be honest, because it's very personal. The mastermind I created was built from scratch based on decades of personal life experience, professional experience, professional trainings. And the format for what we do came to me rather intuitively based on what I felt like really moved the needle for myself in my own journey. But I had this realization that I was almost continuing to play small a little bit myself. By watering down my offer and talking about it in a way that maybe feels vague. So if you're here, you're with me on this journey of electric ideas, my guess is that you too are somebody who wants to continue to evolve and expand and step into your potential. And while I have done so much work in this area, I'm realizing I still have work to do to peel back the layers, to really share my powerful, authentic voice with you. So I'm over the lukewarm, tepid waters in terms of talking about what I do. I'm fired up. This is the fourth time I've taught this program, and I have loads of feedback about how positive and transformational it's been for the women who have joined me. And based on feedback, I've continued to evolve it and grow it and iterate. And now I feel like it is set. So if you are a mom who feels like you have talent and passion in areas of your life that you're longing to explore, but somehow between the job and the responsibilities and the kids, you just cut off the line to allowing yourself to expand, but you'd rather claw at your eyes than go another year feeling like monotony, feeling stuck, feeling like most of your life is just putting out fires for other people or responding to logistical emails. And I want you to feel lit up about your own life. I want you to feel connected to your inner self again. And like you can start taking meaningful action towards feeling lit up and like yourself once again. If this sounds like you, claim your spot today in my Season to Shift Mastermind for Moms. There's a link in my show notes. If you have any issues or questions, you're always welcome to email me at Whitney at myelectricideas.com. I hope you boldly choose yourself today. 
I hope to see you starting on January 31st. And now we've got this beautiful episode to share with you today. Dr. Karen Tilstra is our guest, and she's an author and founder of The Creativity Effect. She's an expert in innovation and creativity and has such a long bio that I will just try to give you the highlights. So Dr. Tilstra has worked with various Fortune 500 companies. She's established innovation labs in all kinds of different sectors. She's worked in healthcare, sports, government, and universities. She co-developed the nation's first undergraduate program in innovation and social entrepreneurship. She's a two-time TEDx speaker and a certified educational psychologist. Her PhD is in creative leadership. She's written multiple books, but today we're discussing her book called The Death Line, Stopping the Number One All-Time Killer of Human Potential. Doesn't her book title alone just make you want to freeze and find out how you're killing your own potential? Let's hop into the show and find out. All right, Dr. Tilstra, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I have found in reading your book, your career is really interesting because your background is in educational psychology, and then you also have a doctorate degree in creative leadership. And something that really stood out to me is that you've worked with leaders across so many industries and people of all different levels, all different ages, and you had some really profound realizations about commonalities of where you think we're kind of universally killing human potential. So let's start there. What I know that's a big loaded question, but I just want to get right into it. I think what I was surprised about as I progressed through my career is that we're all the same. If we're frontline staff, middle managers, top leaders, everybody is afraid of failing or looking stupid or making some kind of mistake. And so we sub-optimize. And when we become aware of it, we can get better at not doing that. But we will second guess ourselves or, oh, you know what? I'm not going to say that or I can't be that vulnerable. So I found that to be across the board. It's something we all share. One thing you said in the book, and this is a quote, it says, their fear caused them to become aggressive, hesitate, withdraw, remain silent, shrink, make poor decisions, choose the wrong direction, or stifle the truth. And that last part, the stifle the truth really sat with me. And I had to think about that one. Tell us about that. Well, I used to think way back that top leaders, they had it all together and that they would be willing to speak truth or they would be willing to be honest, be vulnerable. And that it was the frontline people that were afraid to speak truth to power or didn't feel they had much to offer. But as I started working with people at all different levels from many different industries, it was a commonality that fear kept us from being who we were, embracing our true creativity, speaking with a clear voice. It didn't matter. And in fact, we were at one point, I helped different organizations build innovation labs and train the teams to work in these labs. And it was such a prominent moment for me when the top leader of a very significant Virtual 100 company was sitting in our lab and we were helping him through a, to kind of reimagine one of their medical devices. And the top leader said to me, this is such an awesome process we're going through because we don't really know what we're doing. And we don't want anyone to know that. And therefore, we don't oftentimes share the truth. 
And I was just looking at him. I said, really? And then I said, okay, that's just him. But then I found that top leaders have a lot of pressure. They're almost always really good people. And they, because of the power of their position, they oftentimes feel they can't be vulnerable. They can't let people know what's really going on. And the same applies to frontline staff. They might be very honest in the break room, but when the time comes, they often time to really maybe speak truth to power. It's hard to do. And that's where I developed this theory, the death line, because I started seeing as we were working with different people on either innovation projects, reimagining different processes and equipment or social innovation or even change management that everybody was gung-ho. Yeah, let's do it. Let's innovate. Let's change things. Let's do this. But when it came down to it, to, to honestly be vulnerable, be authentic, it was hard for people, especially in the system where there was a strong hierarchy. And I just saw great ideas never coming to light. People really backing down from what they said. So I didn't really mean that or no, everything's okay. We're okay here. And I also saw many times top leaders were afraid to give really honest feedback because they were afraid they would either appear too vulnerable or they would be too powerful in their feedback. So I just noticed oftentimes like that list you just read, the truth didn't get spoken. Good ideas never saw the light of day. People were willing to, even though they didn't want to, stay in a situation that they knew needed to change, but it was just too big of a step. But in reality, it wasn't. It was just our idea that we couldn't put the truth out there. It was our fear holding us back. Over and over again, I saw that. And I think we see it in many, not just in the work environment, we see it in social circles, we see it, uh, friends, relationships, parenting, in every arena we see it. And I just began developing the, the death, this theory that I eventually called the death line, that if we become aware of it, we can actually start to realize, oh, I am actually sub-optimizing. I am settling here when I don't need to. Can you give us an example? Because I definitely want to bridge into how these death lines impact our day-to-day -day lives because you said this can be in professional settings and personal. Wow. Can you share a story of maybe you or someone you've worked with where you feel like they stumbled upon their death line and you think potentially held themselves back from something bigger because they couldn't cross it? One example I think that really surprised me, it's, it's not in the book, it's just a very simple little example. This leader of a large healthcare organization called me up when I'd been working with them and said, oh, we have some things we want to discuss. I really liked what we did yesterday. Um, what's your schedule tomorrow? And I said, well, I've got some sessions in the morning and um, I, I'm actually pretty booked. Oh, okay. I just was wondering. I thought, wow, that was an interesting conversation. Well, I found out later that they were calling to want to go to lunch, but they didn't say that up front because if I'd have known they wanted to go to lunch, I would have made it happen. But because I said I was... I had a lot going on. They just backed off. And when I found that out, I actually said, you know, I realized you you were asking me what my schedule was because you wanted to go to lunch. And when I said I was pretty busy, I didn't tap into that's what you wanted. But if you had just said that, I would have worked it out. And then the response was, this is the top level leader of a very large organization said, I was a little afraid you'd say no. And I didn't want to have to face that. Another example that's in the book I was helping this organization build an innovation lab. And you, 
get to know a lot of the people in the organization. And it was right around Christmas time. And one of the top managers was asked by the top CEO, the CEO had this idea. We're going to get these cookie boxes and put their Christmas bonus check inside this cookie box. And we need some cookies inside. Okay. Pretty simple thing. And the, the CEO asked her to do it. Well, when I happened to run into her in the hallway and she looked kind of down and I said, what's, hey, what's wrong? And she said, you know, what? I'm really upset. The CEO asked me to do this project, get these cookie boxes arranged. He said, I'm really insulted. He only asked me because I'm a woman and I'm not going to do it. I'm thinking, whoa, okay, well, maybe you should find out more. She said, no, he wouldn't have asked. Why didn't he ask one of the other top managers? No, he asked me and I won't, I won't let that happen to me. So she didn't do it. <laughs> And she didn't tell the, the top manager that she wasn't going to do it. So like two days before the Christmas event, the CEO found out and he just reassigned it to someone else that got it done. And then in the aftermath, the conversation with her was, what happened? And she said, I was just really insulted. That's what you thought, who I was, because I was a woman, I could do the cookies. And he said, no, you have a whole bunch of interns that work for you. I thought it could be so easy. You just had to call a bakery, get the cookies, put them in the box. Your intern's could have handled it. And he said to her, you missed a really great leadership opportunity and you really disbelieved your assumption. See, that's an example of a death line. When she told me, she said, I just couldn't bear the thought if I did the cookies, what they would think of me afterwards. Oh, there's Susie Homemaker. But that wasn't it at all. So she bought into that idea. And so she, well, I say a death line is she drew an imaginary line that she refused to cross because she believed the consequences of crossing that line, aka getting the cookies, putting them in a box, would brand her as Susie Homemaker and be somehow detrimental to her career. In the meantime, she got fired. Actually, she got he fired her. Now, it might have been not only that, there probably was other things. But when I thought about that, I thought, wow, the truth was there. She just didn't uncover it. She believed I cannot look what I think stupid in front of my people, like Susie Homemaker with these cookies. So I'm just not going to do it. And I thought that was such a powerful example. It's hard to believe, but I find a lot of times when people buy into their death lines, these imaginary lines we won't cross because we think the consequences will be too terrible. They just suboptimize left and right. But oftentimes we don't stop to challenge our death lines either. We just believe them. Like, I can't do that. I'll look too incompetent if I do it. When actually the opposite is true. I really started seeing, once I was able to name my theory, I was saw that people started to take these invisible lines that they drew and take them in and they started to view them as safety nets and they just started believing them. And like, I can't look stupid in front of people. I can't uh, speak out and, and, and be wrong in front of my group. I can't be rejected. I can't be vulnerable. And they started then living these death lines and became less and less of who they really were. And I saw a lot of it. So I know it sounds kind of grim. In fact, people ask me, why did you name it such a grim name? But I said, this theory to me was so powerful. I wanted it to have a name that really stood out because something does die on that line. When we draw a death line, something dies on it. Yeah, I feel like that was a powerful example. And since you have worked with so many, like we said, so many leaders in so many industries, yeah. I'm wondering... What are Dr. Tilstra's powerful pivots in those situations where maybe now that we have this language of the death line, I think that some people have an awareness that they're coming up against their own story, right? And it's holding them back. So yes. if we want to be someone who is more of a collaborator, 
and open to creative solutions and innovation and conscious communication. What are some tools that you could give us, for example, when the woman who didn't want to get labeled and was obviously putting herself in a box, what would you have done differently? Well, I have this thing that, that I say, the mother of all questions, what's really going on here? To really embrace that question, what is really going on here with me or with the people around me or the situation? Because I think if we stop and ask that question, if we're honest, we start to realize, oh, let's take the cookie lady. What was really going on here? She could have said, I was afraid I was going to be labeled a Susie Homemaker. That was her big, she kept saying Susie Homemaker. And somehow that didn't set well with her. So instead of her saying, what's really going on here? I'm afraid of this perceived consequence. She just stopped there. But if she could have asked the question, she could have said, I'm afraid. Maybe I could go find out. Because once we ask the question, what's really going on here? That can catapult us into action. I find that too when people are upset about something and they can't extend grace either to themselves or other people. They just get stuck. And when it comes about to change or innovation or thinking differently, it requires movement. And when we create deadlines, we are getting ourselves stuck. There's no movement. We aren't going to move past that deadline because we the imagined consequence is just too much. I just can't bear it. And then and in truth, in actuality, that consequence might not happen. I honestly believe if our cookie friend had gone forward and done the task, and she could, she had like 12 interns that worked in her department, they would have loved doing it too. She could have got it done. The CEO would have been happy. People loved the outcome because at the Christmas event, people were surprised. That it was kind of like a double whammy. They said, oh, our cookie boxes this is what we're getting. And the CEO kind of made a joke. He said, this year, you know, we said to give you cookies and so people were like, oh, okay, thanks a lot. But then when they opened them, there was this check. So, I mean, he kind of had a sense of humor about it. She could have been part of that, but she wasn't because she believed, as I said, that she would make her look less important. I talked with her a while about it. And right after that, again, I ran into her in a totally different organization. And she was there. I said, oh. And she said, you know, Carolyn talked to me about that and, and, and told me your death line theory. And she said, I thought so much about that. I did totally sabotage myself. And she said, I've tried to really take that example and apply it here in my work. And she said, I think I've been more successful. I've been happier. I thought, oh, that's awesome. So you've said that every death line we draw, this is, a, again, a little quote from the book. Every death line we draw is our defense against the pain of judgment, fear, and cynicism. So I'm curious how you think we can identify what our own death lines are so we don't fall into these traps. Yeah, I love that. Oh, yes. Well, if we can just slow down and accept the fact that not everybody has all the answers around us. Because I found that many competent people in situations would oftentimes when you say we're working with a project, I worked a lot of projects, people change management, innovation, creating spaces for innovation. And I found that once you start talking about innovation or creativity, people are like, oh, no, not me. I'm not creative. I, I'm not creative. You got to talk to Linda over there or Jose. They're the creative people. Everybody is creative and everybody has something to say. Everybody has a gift. And it's our beliefs that we're not and that everybody else knows better or is better or can do better. And I know that sounds kind of funny because it's like, no, 
uh, someone might say, I don't believe that. I think I can do things. But I've seen it when we get working into the field of creativity and have to start working on changing things or designing things, we see people start to collapse. What I mean by that is like, oh yeah, I, I'm not very good at this. When actuality, they are. So those lines we draw, we can start saying when we start feeling like that, we start feeling like, oh, not me. I'm upset. I'm frustrated. I'm getting defensive. Those are signs that we're, we are somehow arriving at a death line. And I find that the closer one gets to their death line, the worse their behavior becomes, either defensive, closed down, irritable. And the key, though, is we don't oftentimes even know these death lines. We just know that we don't want to look stupid in front of the boss or we don't want to be wrong or we don't. Well, here's an example that I, I thought was so interesting. I was working in an organization and I was in, um, working with the COO. And one day she came in, I was down in the innovation lab and she's, oh, I'm just, I just made a career killing move or something like that. And I thought, what's that mean? And she said, well, I just called this, the boss and I asked him if I'd meet him today and I, he was golfing and I forgot he was golfing. She says, I'm so embarrassed. I said, what? I, I doubt he cares. I mean, I, I was thinking, is that just, no, she said, I think that was a bad movement on my part. Well, it turned out it wasn't, it didn't matter. But the point for me was, is that the anxiety she had, she came down to the innovation lab to tell me that because she felt so anxious about it. And I said, well, first off, if he's completely thrown off by that, I would be surprised. And I would think if he was, he would need to do some maybe internal work. <laughs> but to get back to your question, if she had just paused and breathed, so I call the toll booth technique, like paying toll, pause, breathe, and ask what's really going on here. Why am I feeling like this? Why am I acting like this? Or why is their behavior bothering me so much? Those are signs. When we get activated, we can ask ourselves, what's really going on? I think it, it kind of relates to road rage. You know, when uh, my mother, I love her dearly, but whenever we're driving with her and if somebody cuts her off, she believes that they were out to get her said, mom, they don't even know you. I doubt they even saw you. But her thing was, if you take a step back, I can't be invisible. And if I am, I'm going to be upset. Well, I think we can all relate to being cut off on the road. And most people, I think in this particular case, might not take it personally. I mean, many, some do, but a person who cuts you off might not even have seen you. But if we get upset, we can ask ourselves, why am I upset? What's really going on? Oh, I'm upset because I was offended they didn't see me. That can't happen because if that happens, that's terrible and terrible things will happen. It's like, no, stop. It, and I think that's what we have to tell ourselves sometimes, just stop. I think this is really helpful because I feel like especially women, and it can be in personal life or in professional environments, tend to ruminate unnecessarily and leak a lot of creative energy and life yes. energy. Love that term, leak a lot of creative energy, yes. Because I've worked in creative fields in a past life and, you know, spending that, I hate to say it, I'm sure it's common with men too, but I don't see them second guessing and spending so much time worrying about perceived, you know, people being frustrated or upset with them, that sort of thing. So maybe you can, you know, even the simple one of this woman thinking she tanked her career because she called her CEO, you know, that I, when we look at it from a distance, it's kind of right. like, What? But why don't you walk us through, because I know you talk about the toll booth technique 
And then also the idea kind of circling back to what you said, like change can't happen without some sort of action is what you said. So yeah. I know that you talk about stopping at the toll booth techniques. So I'm going to reflect that back to you. It's kind of pausing, taking some breaths, and again, asking that fundamental question, which you've shared, what's really going on here? So I like that total intentional pause before we get carried away with our own story, right? <laughs> And then after that, you talk about in the book, wanting to bridge to move forward and take action. So let's talk about that. You call it the four aces. Can you give us kind of an eagle eye and and talk through those a little bit? Yes, I'd be happy to. So when I started getting the idea of a deadline, it came about from working a couple of years working in the field after I got my doctorate and noticing how people would halt and bail out and not speak. It's like, hey, you were just saying something so powerful over there, but now you're with the group, you're not saying it. So anyway, I started to formulate this idea and then I landed on the name. But I thought, how do we teach it? And one day I was driving down Highway 408 here in Florida. This is a, to me a crack up because they have all these dole booths. Now they have the express lane, but it was a few years ago. And I, they had just put the express lane in. I had a transponder and I hadn't renewed it. I realized I didn't have it. So I said, I've got to pull off and go through the toll. Well, the toll was 10 cents, which kind of cracked me up. So anyway, I when I was going down the four-way, I said, oh, wow, I got to pull over here. So I was, had to slow down, stop, get the 10 cents, throw it in the little basket and on my way. When I did that, I had this kind of gestalt. Oh, that's like what we need to do about deadlines. When we get activated, when we're feeling defensive, angry, offended, shy, afraid to be vulnerable, that's the time we need the, the toll booths. Slow down, pause, and ask ourselves what's really going on. So it's really slowing down, pausing, getting out the toll, paying the toll is what's really going on here. When we ask that question, we could get an answer. I was afraid of being embarrassed. I was afraid I'd be rejected. So but we don't have to stop there. We, we can just get insight into what was going on with us or with other people that triggered us. I was leading this group and I thought it was interesting. One of the ladies said, you know, it's not just our death line. Sometimes we get caught in a web of death lines. I thought that was so awesome. So I realized we have to take some kind of action when we actually ask ourselves what's going on here. And so I have these, what I call the four aces, not child trauma aces, but four aces that they end in A-C-E. That's why I call them ace words, space, grace, pace, and place. As I was working on it, I love the concept of the words ending in ACE because ACE, I said, could stand for always create engagement. And that's action. So these four words, they have a command that goes with them. Space. Have I created new mental space for what I'm facing? Grace. Have I extended grace to myself or others to what I'm facing to create movement? Pace. Am I allowing the right pace to happen? Do I need to speed up or slow down? Most of the time, what I've encountered working with organizations and leaders, everyone's at a rapid space, just moving lickety split. Sometimes we need to slow down. Sometimes we need to speed up. But to ask ourselves, what is the proper pace needed? Then the last one is place. Am I in the right place to handle this or to create a, a better outcome? And sometimes we need to move our place. I'm talking about physical place. So these require us to observe and question. They require us to suspend judgment and to embrace our creativity, to actually 
say, I am a creative person. I can do this. I am activated by a death line. So I want to back up from that. And I don't want this death line to imprison me or prevent me from the good things that could happen. So I want to go through the toll booth, pause, breathe, and ask myself what's really going on. And then one of these ace words, space, grace, pace, and place, would one of them help me? Would all four of them help me? Would two of them help me? Would three of them help me? And then we now have some tools to work with. Instead of just saying, yeah, I'm activated, like the cookie lady, I'm activated, so I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. And I'll kind of show him. Well, that didn't end well for her. If she could have paused and breathed and asked what's really going on here, she could have probably said, wow, I'm overreacting here. What can I do? Do I need new space for mental thinking? New, new thinking? Do I need to extend grace? Do I need a different pace? And do I need to get into a different place? I would say she needed all four. She needed to reframe her thinking and get new thinking. She needed to offer grace to her boss, who she somehow thought was trying to make her look less effective. She could have slowed down her pace. She could have changed her place. I'm right here in my office. I can change my place. I can go to his office and ask him, tell me a little more about this. If she had just done that, I mean, that's simple. In fact, what I found is when I teach people about death lines and they're able to start identifying them, they oftentimes will tell me, wow, I really was caught in some irrational thought. But if I use the toll booth technique, it gave me space and room to create a way to move in a different way. And I've had people tell me, I just needed grace. That's all I needed. And that made the difference. I've had people say, just knowing about a death line and the toll booth technique is what I needed. And some people have told me all four of those ace words, space, grace, pace, and place is what I needed. So it's actually whatever works for you. I just would love the idea of the death line becoming into our vernacular, into our vocabulary, because then we could have a way to notice. It kind of puts it out in front of us. This is happening. I'm getting activated and I'm suboptimizing my behavior, my options, my possibility, but I don't have to because I now realize what's happening. I've drawn this invisible line and I believe the consequences that would happen are going to happen when they might not. Now they might not at all happen because it's another way you could say robbing from the outcome. I'm not going to speak up because I know I'm not going to say it well and I'll look kind of silly. Well, maybe you will, maybe you won't, but you'll never know because you don't do it. And a lot of people won't speak up. That's what I've learned too, which I've been surprised about in organizations. So many people have said, boy, I just wanted to say something, but I just didn't. In fact, oftentimes if I teach this deadline, people come backwards and say, I really resonated because I was in a meeting, a department meeting, and I had something to say, but the whole department was there and there's like 15 people and I didn't want to look stupid or sound like I didn't know what I was talking about. So I just didn't say anything. And then I learned later, someone else had the same idea and it worked. And so it's just funny how we are. We can overcome death lines and we can become aware of them. Yes, I agree. And I'm curious because, you know, I'm really focused on empowering women. I truly think when we help women step into their fullest expression, which is moving past their death lines, to use your word, everyone benefits, not just them. So can you give us maybe an example that's outside of the workplace where you think a common death line that women might hit and walk through the toll booth thinking with that example? Yes. Some of these seem so silly, but they're actually real. When the Barbie movie came out last summer, some friends and I, we said, hey, we all had Barbie dolls. So I was so excited. And then I 
start, we start realizing everybody, all of our friends, women, young, old, all related to Barbie. And so one lady um, was a, a social planner for a, a local church. And she said, let's have it in this church. Okay, so there was like 45 ladies, or maybe actually more like 70 ladies, all coming in in Barbie garb, old, young. They were bringing grandchildren. They were bringing young girls. Everybody was centering around Barbie. Then they were going to have this fashion show. Okay, so I was, you might say, in the inner circle that was helping plan this. So when the fashion show started, we're talking a silly little fashion show. It had no bearing on anything. It's just people stood along in this big room. People just got kind of drew to the sides. We made this little aisle and people walked down. I did not participate because I said, oh, I'll take the pictures because I said, I'm going to feel really silly walking down here because in all truth, I felt like I'd gained some weight. I felt mm, this is my Barbie outfit might not have been. So I just didn't do it. I took pictures. Okay. And then I kept telling myself, I should just walk down the aisle. What am I doing? But I didn't. And I kept telling myself, what kept me? And I, this is honestly what I thought. My Barbie clothes were not as authentic as some of the others. Some of these ladies really went on. I just had this pink dress on and that hat that had this pink band on it. Nobody would have cared at all. People said, oh, there goes Karen. Yeah, okay. But I didn't do it. And I said to myself, okay, this is a death line. I had this idea that I would look silly, that I had not really gone to the authentic Barbie look. And some of these people, believe me, Far Out Barbie was there. I didn't even know Far Out Barbie existed. Anyway, that's an example of I just suboptimized my own experience because I thought I'd get judged. When I got home, I thought that was ridiculous. Why did I get caught up like that? So I have empathy and sympathy for people in all kinds of situations because that was a low risk, no nothing to lose in that women's meeting. But I did not participate in that fashion show. And I was right there. Well, I appreciate your honesty because I think it's kind of this tale of getting in our own way and holding ourselves back from celebration and in the moment joy for fear oh. of what other people might think when really everyone, no one else is even thinking about that. And a friend of mine, Sherry, came in as a professional Barbie. And I think when I saw her come in, I thought, oh, that is, she's right on point. So I understand how deadlines work. I tend to be more extroverted. So you would think, why would I care? No, I, at that moment, I just said, I just feel embarrassed to be in this fashion show. But again, Nobody would have cared. People would have cheered. Everybody was cheering for everybody. It didn't matter. I mean, but I think that's a really great example that people could relate to because it's not working with some high level leader. It's not doing some magnificent thing. It's just simply participating in a social event with a group of friends and still fighting with the death line. Thank you for sharing that. So I know we're coming up against time. I just wanted to, just because again, you have such an interesting background when it comes to fostering creativity, new ideas collaboration and not getting caught up in fear of different or change. What's your best advice for empowering women and either language or practices or lifestyle to keep that door open for us? I think just do it. If you have an idea, just do it. Iterate it forward. Because when we have an idea, ideas are just little bursts of inspiration. They don't have to be perfect. You could try it. Try it in a small setting. Just do it. So many times I've heard people say, I wanted to do that, or I had this idea, I just never did it because 
I wasn't sure how to or people would accept it. Just do it. If you want to reach out to a friend, just reach out to a friend. If you're afraid to speak out in the whole group, just run it by someone to begin with. Just iterate it forward. The key is movement. Nothing happens without movement. And you see that in the hospital with a, you know, in the heart monitor. If it's flat, that's not good. And I think that applies to our life. When we opt out of things, when we want to do something, but we're facing death lines, we create all these lines where we can't do it because we have these imagined consequences. Let's just do it. Just try it. I mean, it's not the end of the world if you fail. And you don't have to do it on a big scale. Just try it on a small scale, but try it because everybody's creative with leadership potential. And that's a message we don't hear often, but I've seen it. I know it. I worked in this field a long time. I was at Ed Psych before. Everybody is creative with leadership potential. And what I've told so many students, if you don't give your gift to the world, no one can give it for you and the world will be lost your gift forever. So just believe and try it. You're very obviously reflective and self-aware person. I'm picturing a do-over for Karen and her Barbie outfit, just like owning that runway. Do you have any other thoughts on just in general living without regret? Stop rubbing from the outcome. Here's an example. Next week, I'm going to be doing, making some short little videos. I'm working with a film person. This is a very competent person. And one was referring to him yesterday. It was like, oh, I don't know, Karen, you know, what if this doesn't work? And what if the people don't, because we're going to be filming some groups of people doing some things, getting empathy on anyway. And we better really practice it. I said, well, here's the thing we don't really have. It's kind of a do as go as we do or do as we go. And I finally said to him, I said, you know, you are really a competent person. What's happening here? And he said, I don't want to disappoint you. And I know I'm going to disappoint you. I said, oh, no, you won't. I know you won't disappoint me because I'm not quite sure what we're doing. And we're going to discover it as we go. And sometimes when you're making short little videos, sometimes it's how you have to do it, even though it sounds crazy. And I thought that was so interesting because he was ready to say, let's postpone until after the, the year. And I, I just thought, wow, this is such a simple little thing we want to do. And I was trying to be empathetic. And when he said, Karen, I just don't want to disappoint you. I felt a lot of compassion for him. And I said, oh, I'm sorry if I maybe I've been coming off in a way that you think that you would disappoint me. And he said, no, I just, I just hold that such a high standard to myself. And he said, there's so many jobs I turned down because I don't want to disappoint people. I said, oh, you won't disappoint me because we're going to co-create this. And he said, wow, that's so much freedom. And I don't view myself as some big guru or highly knowledgeable person. But at that moment, I just said, let's just co-create it. And I had an insight how many times we suboptimize, bail out, don't speak up, just close things down because we don't want to disappoint or we don't, we think we're not going to be good enough or we're not, it's not going to work. We never know until we try it. Do you know who John Kaczynski is? He was a gym on The Office. Mm-hmm. I heard when I was writing this book, I guess, I gosh, what if I get a bad review? He created this movie called The Quiet Place. So I'm interviewed the day it came out and he said he couldn't go out of his house. He was just completely beside himself, freaked out because he said, I couldn't bear the negative criticism I was going to get. And his wife, Emily Blunt, said, well, maybe you won't get criticism. Or if you do get criticism, maybe it'll help you. And he said he had to actually get a hold of himself and say, I've got to embrace this because I'm out in the world now and I got to just accept what people are going to say. 
that was so amazing to me to hear him say that because he's been quite successful in the office, gone on to be John Wick or, or Jack, whatever that program he's in. And I, I just said, even those people who have been successful, who are well-known around the world, will still, at the moment of vulnerability, will collapse. And I think we can get a lot of courage from that. So if you want to do something, do it. Try it. If you don't succeed at first, that's okay. You learn more from failure than you do from success anyway. We learn from as we go. But if we don't do it, if we're not moving, if we don't step into what we want to do, it'll never happen. So give yourself grace. That's what I would say. Forgive yourself. And you might be amazed what it will do for others when you start to move. That's such a great point to leave on. Thank you so much for sharing that. I always end my conversations with a reflective question so that people and my listeners can keep noodling beyond the conversation. So in this area of overcoming fear or death lines, if you will, and stepping into human potential, which I think we all crave, we all want that sense of a life well lived, a fulfillment. Yeah. What's one question women could be asking themselves more? This might sound kind of trite, but what would you do if you weren't afraid? Or what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail or wouldn't fail? I ask that to people. Or what are you afraid of? Yeah, a lot to investigate there for sure, especially on the heels of this conversation. <laughs> well, just do it. I mean, I know Nike has that saying, but just try it. What do you want to try? That's what I would say. What do you want to try and how might you do it? Yeah. And I know we're wrapping up, but I feel like just that last point you said is how much it might affect the people around you. It's incredible to me when I've seen women shift through and step into this version of themselves that's almost been latent and they feel more lit up and energized. Wow. All of a sudden their relationships that are better and energized, their relationships with their children are better. So Sometimes that's my uh, like little lens is it's almost a generous act for the people you love. Yes. I'm so glad you said that. I have a friend who's a singer. She's living in London now. And we were doing some programs together. And um, we had a group we were working with and some of them were really nervous. And I remember so vividly what she said. She said, we're giving a gift to people. If we get on that stage and worry how we look and we don't do well, we won't. But if we think what we're doing is a gift to the people in the audience who came in, gave their time to spend with us, we're giving them a gift. And I saw the people relax. I relaxed. I thought, that's powerful. And I try to remember that because we do a lot of presentations. It's a gift. Take it and use it. You can use it again. But if you get learn things from us or tools from us, use them, take them, tweak them, feel free. But it's a gift. And your smile is a gift. An encouragement to someone is a gift. And I think we underestimate the impact we can have and the encouragement we can give to others by just moving and giving ourselves grace. A question could be, what grace do I need to extend to myself so I can offer my gift to the world? All right. Well, thank you for all these beautiful reflections. This will give my listeners so much to think on. So nice to be here. And I love your work. Well, thank you. (laughs) I know that people will want to continue to follow and connect with you. So if you want to just share where we can find you, that'd be great. 
We're on creativityeffects.com. You can find Karen Tilstra. Also, Amazon, Karen Tilstra, the books are there. Um, and also, I'd love to hear from people. I, I love to hear feedback. What worked, what didn't work, what was helpful, what wasn't helpful. It's all good feedback. There's no, no such thing as bad feedback. It's all good information. So, yeah, I'd love to connect because I know there's your listeners are awesome, wonderful group of people or women. And um, we're all in this together. So I'd love to connect with you. Fantastic. Okay. And we'll make sure to capture a link to your book in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you. And Godspeed, all the best to you. Thank you. I'm so glad you joined me today. If you're looking for more, feel free to connect with me on Instagram at, at @whitneywoman. And if you enjoyed the show, I invite you to support me by leaving a review or sharing it with a friend. Hope you have an inspired day.